Well, last Sunday, last Thursday and Friday nights, we have meditated on John's way of telling us about the death of Christ. Throughout the Gospel of John, John presented the events that led to the crucifixion of Jesus through the theme of a lawsuit. A lawsuit with accusations, a lawsuit with witnesses brought against Jesus. And as we saw Friday night, everything about this lawsuit was smeared with injustice and false accusations. The Roman official who was asked to judge this lawsuit was unconvinced of the accusations and sought until the very end to declare Jesus innocent. The Jewish leaders throw all kinds of tricks to, tri to twist the Roman governor's hand to convict Jesus. And all of these tricks failed except the last one when the Jews declared that they have no king but Caesar. It is after this confession of denouncing the kingship of God that Pilate gave the verdict to crucify Jesus. Now all of this happened to fulfill what Jesus had told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Friends, the crucifixion of Jesus was necessary in order to bring us eternal life. But not everyone will, will receive this eternal life. Only those who believe in what Jesus came to do will have a part in the eternal life. My friend, if you are not an active follower of Christ, I want to give you a big heads up on this Easter morning. He came to save sinners like you and me from the wrath of God because we have rebelled against God and we carry in us from birth a rebellious nature against God. But God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. And believing in Christ is not just an intellectual ascent. Belief in Christ is not like any other belief that we have in this life. No, belief in Christ, if truly understood, is a belief that makes us live by the truth. In John's Gospel, John, Jesus tells us that the reason why he was born was to testify about the truth. But he is the truth. In John 3.21 says, Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. To believe in Christ means that we accept he came, what He came to do for us. He came to rescue us from sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil in our lives. To make, to make us a new creation. To change our destiny. To redirect our hopes from this earthly life to an everlasting life. And all of this was accomplished through His death on the cross. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. But friends, Jesus' prediction about His death was not the only prediction He made. 
A few times in the gospel, he told his disciples that even though he will be executed, he will come back to life. Yet his disciples did not get it. They were not able to register Jesus' prediction, neither about his crucifixion nor about his resurrection. Friends, the disciples did not go to bed Saturday night all excited, saying, I can't wait for tomorrow morning. They went to bed Saturday night with their hopes shattered, with their dreams ruined. The one they had put their hopes in, the one they had thought was the Messiah, ended up being crucified, which in Jewish thought was a symbol of being cursed by God. And indeed, that's what the Jewish meaning of the cross was. Cursed by God. And Jesus did this for us. For you and for me. He was cursed by God. Now, his disciples could not understand the notion of a crucified Messiah. Moreover, they were also afraid that the Jews would come after them, so they locked the doors to protect their lives. This is how we find the disciples in John chapter 20, when Jesus appeared in their midst on the evening of the resurrection day. He appeared in their midst as the one who had overcome the verdict of the trial. The lawsuit had finished. The verdict was pronounced. The execution was carried out. But Jesus overcame Jesus overcame the trial. Jesus overcame the execution of the trial. I encourage you to open your scriptures to John chapter 20. We'll be reading two verses from John 20, and then we'll flip back a few chapters earlier to chapter 16. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page 943. John chapter 20. I'll be reading verse 19 and 20. Here's the word of the Lord for us. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now let's flip a few pages back to chapter 16. And I'll be reading from verse 16 all the way to verse 33. Jesus taught his disciples, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I mean? What I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn 
while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No. The Father will himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I come from God. I come, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. And Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. This was the word of the Lord for our hearts and for our gathering this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, your Son has overcome the world, and his resurrection is a proof of his claim. Lord Jesus, we pray, would you speak to us as the one who needs to overcome any obstacles in our own hearts. Would your word open our hearts so that we may understand it. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we mentioned already what was the significance of Jesus' crucifixion. I invite you this morning to explore two meanings of the resurrection, two meanings that Jesus predicted to his disciples about the resurrection, and hopefully two meanings for us about the, about the resurrection of Jesus. What should we seek to experience on this day of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus? Two things that Jesus predicted, that Jesus fulfilled through his resurrection. The resurrection day, the day of resurrection, is first and foremost a day of peace. There are a number of surprising elements in the appearance of Jesus to his disciples on the evening of the resurrection day. If we keep on reading in John chapter 20, where we started, we find that Jesus appeared to his disciples to give them the great commission 
and to breathe on them the Holy Spirit. But what I'd like to focus on this morning is the way Jesus greeted his disciples the first time he appeared to them. Look at verse 19. Jesus said, Peace be with you. Now, this was a common way of greeting in Jewish culture, but the root of that greeting was not common at all. The Hebrew shalom was more than a greeting. It was an all-encompassing term of well-being that would characterize the people of God once God would establish His kingdom. The fact that Jesus uses this term to greet His disciples on Easter Day is very significant. It was not just a regular greeting. The shalom of Easter is the outcome of the phrase Jesus uttered on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. Now that the reconciliation between God and man had been accomplished, the, expect, the expected peace is finally a reality for these disciples. And Jesus doesn't simply say, peace. Jesus says, peace be with you. And Jesus uses this greeting not just once, but twice. Look at verse 19, and then look again at verse 21. Twice, Jesus greets his disciples with this phrase, Peace be with you, thus showing the emphasis of what he's declaring. More so a few chapters earlier, when Jesus was predicting his suffering and resurrection, Jesus told his disciples in John 16, verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. And a few chapters earlier, prior to chapter 16, in John 14, verse 27, Jesus told his disciples once again, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives the peace. How amazing, dear friends. Just think for a moment. Before the crucifixion, before the greatest suffering Jesus was to endure, and before the resurrection, Jesus predicted a new experience of peace. A peace that is given to us by Jesus. He gives it to us not like the world gives it. The peace of Christ is obtained not through retaliation. It is not obtained through compromise. But the peace of Christ is obtained through the cross. It is given freely only to those who are in Christ. And when Jesus appears for the first time to these gathered disciples, he says, Peace be with you. That's why, dear friends, it should not surprise us that the term peace became part of the frequent Christian vocabulary in the first century. Do you realize that in most of Paul's letters, when Paul began writing his letters, he begins his letters with a phrase, Grace and peace. And if we read the other letters of the New Testament, many of the authors use the same introductory phraseology, grace and peace. Dear brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus is a day of announcing God's peace with man. Last week, one of the members who greeted me at the door 
used this greeting. Peace be with you. And I was rather startled by this way of greeting. Because here in the U.S., our greetings are much more casual, even in church. Hi, hello, how are you? Great to see you. And if you really want to be Texan, you would say howdy. But the greeting of Jesus on the resurrection day was not as trivial. It was more intentional. It was so significant that twice he greeted his disciples with peace be with you. Now, there have been certain Christian groups that have used this peace greeting or peace offering not at the beginning of services like we do when we greet visitors, but there are certain Christian groups that would use this peace giving or peace offering after the reading of Scripture and after the preaching of the sermon because these Christians think that they are giving peace to one another as a response to God's Word. In other words, our God-given peace is not the, state of the natural state of affairs. It exists only because it has been created by what God had done for us in Christ. And it is shared as our response to hearing God's word afresh. As one pastor said, when we offer peace to each other, it is an act of faith, believing that God has called us and empowered us to do this. Some Christian groups offer this peace right before serving communion to symbolize the effect of Christ's sacrifice on our relationships. Here's how one pastor described the challenge of offering peace today. Sometimes, passing the peace can be a little uncomfortable. It can remind us of how broken and incomplete our relationships with our brothers and sisters really are. And we can and should offer peace to one another not based on our natural human emotions or affections, but in faith that Jesus has indeed established peace for us and among us. Faith drives us to live in that peace and claim that peace even if we don't feel it and even if our sinfulness, if our, in our sinfulness we sometimes fall short of it. To greet one another in peace is an act of faith. And it should compel us to make that peace more real among us. Friends, for Jesus, this greeting was not just a customary Jewish greeting. For the first time in human history, this greeting was loaded with the rich significance of what God had done for us in Christ. Peace be with you. Remember, you and I cannot create this peace for ourselves. It must be given to us from above. And therefore, since this peace is not made by us, we must cherish it and maintain it as a precious treasure and as a responsibility that has been entrusted to the church of Jesus Christ. Friends, the day of resurrection is a day of peace. God's peace declared to us and given to us by Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, 
Do you have this peace? Do you have this peace in your life? Do you have this peace in your family? My friends, this peace can only be experienced by those who are Christ followers. We cannot experience this peace with family members who are not Christ followers. We cannot experience this peace with friends who are not Christ followers. Friends, let me ask our congregation, do we as a congregation have this peace? Do we cherish it? Does it characterize our relationships with one another? Some people this morning would probably be able to say in all honesty that they have a pretty peaceful life. Friend, if you are one of these people this morning, let me ask you, is it because everything is going well for you? Or is it because Christ has given you His peace? Here's how you know the difference between worldly peace and Christ's peace. Worldly peace can be enjoyed only when everything is going well for you. Christ's peace, however, can be enjoyed even when the world is turned upside down. Do you have the peace of Christ? Jesus told his disciples that he would give them his peace right before the crucifixion. How can you have peace right before knowing that you're going to die and die on a cross? But Jesus had this peace before the crucifixion. And Jesus told his disciples he's going to give them his peace. That's the peace of Christ. It's a peace we can experience when the world is upside down. Do you have this peace? Oh, how I hope that we would adopt and use in our vocabulary the greeting that one of our members greeted me with last week. Peace be with you. By greeting ourselves in this way, we do not just repeat the words of Jesus on the day of resurrection. We do more than that, dear friends. If we were to adopt this greeting as our congregation, and I would love for us to do so, we would do the following. We would actually tell the world that our unity and our peace is not rooted simply in the fact that we like each other or that we have similar preferences. We don't gather and we don't have peace because we like the same music or because we have the same hobbies or because we are a very friendly group of people. That's not the reason for our weekly gatherings. That's not the reason for our unity. Our unity and peace is only because of Christ. So when we gather as a church, even our greeting could remind us of the basis of our union with each other. Christ, peace be with you. The peace Christ gave his disciples was not an individualistic and private peace, but a peace in the midst of their gathering together. Paul said in Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. In other words, dear friends, the peace that Christ gave his disciples and the peace that Paul is calling the church to have is not an individualistic peace, is not a private peace, is not a closet peace. 
It's the peace experienced in the gathering of saints. It's the peace experienced by the church of Christ, by the gathering of believers. Here's another way you can distinguish the peace of Christ from the peace of the world. The peace of Christ is not a private individualistic peace, but a peace shared with the other saints. If you're seeking only your own private peace, apart from the gathering of the saints, I'm afraid you might be looking for a worldly kind of peace. Friends, that's why the regular gathering of the saints is a crucial component of what Christ came to give to us. Through it, we display the peace we have with one another because of Christ. Do you have this peace? Are you seeking this peace? The resurrection day is a day of peace, but the resurrection day is something else. It's a day when grief turns into rejoicing. Is a day when grief turns into rejoicing. Jesus predicted two things for the disciples. He predicted that he will give them peace. But the second thing Jesus predicted in chapter 16 of John, he said that I tell you the truth in verse 20. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn into joy. And this is the second reality of the resurrection day. Your grief will turn to joy. Now, before we look at the promise of joy, Jesus predicts weeping and mourning. And Jesus even gives illustration of the pain of a woman going through giving birth. And we must remember, Jesus said this in a day when epidural was not an option. The disciples will experience grief and mourning while the world rejoices. And in the original context, Jesus was referring to the pain the disciples will go through because of the crucifixion of Jesus, because they will no longer see Jesus. And he says in verse 22, now is your time of grief. But grief and pain is not the last word Jesus gives these disciples. He goes on in verse 22 and says, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And your joy, no one will take away from you. Now, the joy Jesus is predicting is not just any kind of joy. It is not the joy caused by getting a raise by your employer. It is not the joy caused by material blessings. It is a Christ-centered joy, a resurrection-centered joy. You will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. What a promise. But there's a very interesting detail, a detail which the NIV does not clarify for us. But if we read in the NAS version, we have a very clear picture, a very interesting detail. The NAS says, your heart will rejoice. Now, why is this detail significant? Why do I point it out? Because these words are literally taken from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 14. When in the prophet Isaiah describes a time of, of the end times. And here's what the prophet says. When you see this, your heart will rejoice. And the exact same words Jesus now uses to predict and foretell about his resurrection and the way his disciples will react to it. Now, let me read the context in Isaiah 66. Read the whole chapter on your own at home. But here's verse 12 of Isaiah 66. 
He foretells a time when God will bring the end times, a final restoration for his people, and the final judgment for his enemies. And here's what he says. For this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river, and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees as a mother comforts her child. So I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass, and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's taking pictures from Isaiah 66 that talk about the end times. And he's using that language, those categories, to describe his resurrection. Peace, the imagery of a mother and a child, and then the, the heart that will rejoice. In other words, by quoting Isaiah 66, Jesus is telling us that his resurrection is the beginning of the end times for the people of God. The time after the resurrection of Jesus begins the era of the end of human history. That's why the Apostle John, in one of his letters, told Christians, he wrote to Christians saying, Dear children, this is the last hour. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus marks the beginning of the end. And it is a joy of seeing Jesus again. It is a joy that that end is coming that the disciples will have. And it's a joy that no one will ever take away from them. Friend, do you have this joy? Do you have this joy of looking forward to see Jesus? Are you seeking this morning just to be joyful in a worldly way? Or are you seeking a Christ-centered joy? Friends, the reason the disciples were able to experience this joy on the day of resurrection was because they had put all their hopes in Christ. For them, Christ became everything. At one point in the gospel, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. Now, let me translate that sentence in vernacular language for us. It means that the disciples had put all their eggs in one basket. And that basket was Jesus. We have left everything to follow you. The reason why the disciples could experience this Easter resurrection joys was because Jesus was everything for them. And the reason why their pain was so hard and painful as Jesus was crucified is, uh, is because they have lost all their hope. My friend, do you have this joy? Have you experienced the joy of the resurrection? The joy of seeing Jesus alive because he is the only hope, the only one you care for? The supreme joy, the supreme treasure? Friends, there are people who accept to have Jesus as part of their life. 
but do not have Jesus as their life. There is a difference, dear Christian friends, to claim this morning that you and I have Jesus a part of our lives. That is not enough. Jesus wants to be your life. Jesus wants to be my life. Jesus wants to be our life. Friend, the joy Jesus promises can be experienced only by those who put all their hopes in him. If you're unable to experience this joy this morning, let me ask you a quick diagnosis question. Is your lack of joy this morning caused by the fact that Christ is no longer your supreme pursuit? Friend, I want to help you see that the joy Christ promised can only be experienced by those who make Christ the supreme joy of their lives. Because what he brings us is far more superior than anything we could experience in this world. Friends, on the day of the resurrection, Jesus delivered two promises which he predicted before his disciples, before his crucifixion. He told them he will give them peace. And he told them that on, that on the day of resurrection, their grief will be turned into joy. And when he appeared in John 20, on the evening of that day of resurrection to his disciples, let me read again the words he said. On the evening of that first day, when the disciples were together with the door locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he, after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Friends, this is the experience the disciples had on the resurrection day. And this is the experience that Jesus wants us to have today as we celebrate the resurrection day. But friends, Jesus had a realistic message also. Jesus said in, in John 16, In this world you will have trouble. And a chapter later in John 17, in his priestly prayer for the disciples, Jesus warns his disciples that the world will hate them because they're not of the world. But the presence of troubles in our lives should not have the last word, just as Jesus did not end his predictions with trouble. He continued, and Jesus said in John 16, 33, But take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, it's not coincidental that in Revelation, the message Christ gives to each of the seven churches ends with the following phrase, To him who overcomes. Why? Because he himself has overcome. And the one we are called to follow is the overcomer. Friends, do not let the experience of troubles in your life today overshadow the joy of Christ's resurrection. The end times are characterized by this combination of suffering and joy. And Jesus' resurrection is inaugurated has inaugurated the end of human history. Let us be neither surprised of the presence of suffering mixed with joy, nor become disappointed at the presence of suffering in our lives. Let us endure to the end. Jesus overcame the world not by escaping suffering, not by escaping the cross, but by enduring it. Likewise for us, the promises of peace and joy are not alternatives to suffering. 
They are not alternatives to carrying our cross, but they are promises that we will experience peace and joy as we follow Christ through self-denial and through taking up our cross daily. What gives us the hope that we will overcome the world is that we follow the one who has overcome. And let this resurrection day be the day when you experience afresh God's peace and God's joy. Not a worldly peace, not a worldly joy, but the joy and peace which Christ has procured for us through his cross and resurrection. Do you have the peace? Do you have the joy? Let us pray.